We come before you, God. We come as your people, thankful for this, your day, the Lord's day, uh, the Sabbath of the New Testament era. Gracious God, we know that you have created the Lord's day for us and not we for the Lord's day. That is, it is for our good, for our rest, both physical and spiritual. And again, God above, we are thankful that we can meet as your people, although separated, we are still united by one faith, one Lord, and one baptism in God. And as you remind us in your word, uh, that wherever your people are gathered together, worshiping in your name, there you are pleased. And so, God, we are thankful that we can worship, even though we are worshiping in our homes. We're thankful, Lord, that we can hear your word, have these prayers offered up in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray in particular, God, for our work situation. We ask, Lord, that you would be with us and our jobs, that those of us who have difficult times before us, this is some projects we have in our church, Lord, it would go well, even under these bad conditions of the weather. We pray and ask, Lord, for continued steady employment. We're thankful for the jobs that we do have, Lord, and ask for better pay if needed, God, to provide for our household, provide for our future, Lord, for difficult times ahead. We know there are many who are unemployed in this nation, God, from last year, and it's still going on through the economy. Uh, we don't know the extent of it fully. And we ask God for mercy, especially upon Christians, Lord, that they would have access to good jobs and that we would try our best to have good skills and better skills, Lord, to work as unto you. We lift up our church before you, God, our church in particular, for her growth numerically and spiritually, for growth and fruit of the Spirit and love for one another, and not just for our church, God, but for all those who name the name of Christ Jesus. We pray and ask God that they would all grow grown love for you and love for one another, and in the knowledge of the Word of God. We pray for continued Christian education. We think of the history we have in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church that takes Christian education seriously, God, that we want to train ministry, we want to train laymen, and so we have Sunday school and Bible studies and books, Lord, and services provided, God, to give us better instruction, uh, to dig deeper into the Word of God for our edification, for the good of the Church, Jesus Christ. We pray that we continue, God, and that we would do what we can we know that we are busy, Lord. We're not all called to be pastors. But help us, God, to continue to read, to be instructed in your word, uh, to repeat the basics of the faith, Lord, in a day and age which is tearing down the faith. We desire, God, for your spirit to move among us, that we would have more faithful teachers rise up among us, uh, men who are spiritually emboldened to preach your word, who are well instructed in the ways of your word, and as doubly so, Lord, in this day and age, with attack upon the natural law around us, there'd be men who understand natural law. And God, we ask that you would strengthen our presbyteries to pass and to examine faithful ministers and teachers, God, that they would work in unity and work strong as unto the Lord, and that you would help our presbytery in particular out here in the Dakotas uh, towards unity, continued unity, Lord, and for the men who work on the various committees to deal with the various things that are uh, common concerns and responsibilities of the regional church of the Presbytery. And so, God, we pray that you give them wisdom, give them cooperation, uh, give them perseverance, do the right thing, God. And we ask, Lord, also that you would give us uh, protection as churches, uh, protection from uh, wickedness and wicked people, Lord, as we see uh, yet another scandal explode in evangelicaldom, uh, where a big name, Lord, uh, was a predator, God and he went. He did it for uh, several several years, if not a decade or more. 
apparently everyone was blind to the fact. No one's specifically responsible, it looks like, from the recent report, God. Uh, but we know how these things are. People turn a blind eye. They don't want to dig too deep and things like that. And God, we pray that would not happen to us. We ask God uh, for more wisdom, uh, less naivety, uh, more uh, discernment and bravery, God, to stand up to people who have influence and power, God, uh, if they are doing wickedly, Lord. We have the strong temptation in Christian circles as we are influenced by the nation, Lord, uh, to put up with a lot because someone is popular and gets the attention of other people or the media and the like, God. Uh, may we not, Lord, go down that path, but rather strive for purity in the church. Help us, God, protect us from uh, such men and such people in the churches that would tear us down, that would pray upon us, God. Give us wisdom to build up the walls of protection for our churches and for our families and our children especially. We're thankful, Lord, for the protection you've given our sisters and brothers over in Japan, God, with the large earthquake out in the ocean again, no tsunami this time. Uh, there was some disturbance upon the lands, upon the people. We're thankful, God, that you washed over them. Uh, may this earthquake, again, ten years after the last large one, tsunami, uh, be used to wake up those of Japan. Uh, they've been a slumber for so long, God, and we ask that they would bring, you would bring the fear of God into their hearts. We pray the same for our nation as we see it fall apart around us, <clears throat> that we would stand firm and they would see us cling to you. And they would see, uh, God, us loving one another and following you, Lord, and may they have convictions in their hearts to repent and follow Jesus. We ask God for the guidance of my words that I preach to your people today. In your name alone we pray. Amen. Let us turn to 1 Peter. I'm going through 1 Peter in the morning and Zechariah in the evening. So we'll do this again tonight. In a day and age uh, in which we are inundated with falsehoods and lies of the most basic nature, uh, we need more instruction as we are able. And so our church has always been committed to having morning and evening worship as, as our tradition and Bible studies throughout the week, as we are able, of course. I know many of us go to bed early and get up early as well, so that becomes hard. That's fine. But uh, pray uh, more people would desire and hunger and thirst after righteousness and find churches such as ours and others, Lord, uh, that are here to help them and feed them. And they would not flee, but rather come with us and bring their strength to our weakness and our weakness to their strength. So here we are in 1 Peter 1, 2. In good Puritan fashion, I'm still on verse 2. This is my fourth sermon. Uh, and I think you'll see why when I read it here. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience, and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. With these words, God, we are thankful and grateful for so much doctrine and truth. We ask that we would be encouraged to understand what the text tells us here at the end of verse 3. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Amen. And so that's the last part. This is the fourth sermon there. We see grace to you and peace be multiplied. In the prior three sermons, I preached on the selection of the Father according to his foreknowledge of all things that work out according to his plan and then the sanctification by the Spirit for obedience, and then the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Three S's are saved by Jesus Christ, echoing Paul in Ephesians 1, 3-14. And then we have a formal greeting here, Grace to you and peace be multiplied. 
We've all heard this many times. It's a common refrain in the New Testament letters. Paul uses this blessing or a variation of it in almost all his letters. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle John uses this phrase as well, and Peter uses it in both of his epistles. The commonality of this phrase makes it easy to pass over and not think in terms of, oh, what if my pastor is going to preach on these three or four words? Well, I am. We know it's a form of greeting, and it's a prayer, if you think about it. But often we don't slow down to think about it, and now is our time to do so. Here in 1 Peter, it's not even given its own verse designation, so it's easy to be, to be lost. Uh, my particular uh, translation, NKJV here, actually broke off this verse, this sentence inside this verse, so it stands out. But many of yours have probably all collapsed, but it is part of verse 2, and so it's easy to lose sight of. It's tucked away. Interestingly, as we read here, Peter and Jude use the verb, be multiplied. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. In Second Peter we read, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So there in Second Peter, he adds more words to this. Through the knowledge of our God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here, uh, there are no uh, other subjects. It's just grace to you and peace be multiplied. Very simple. We read the similarity in Jude 1-2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. With these thoughts, let's look more carefully here at this phrase and the two components, right? Grace and peace. And what is he talking about? Grace to you, the first point. What is grace? Grace in general. First of all, I need to go back to some uh, basics. My daughter's going to school right now. She's learning all the basics of grammar and math, her least favorite subject, although she's good at it. English, especially, is what we commonly use, and it's a very uh, powerful tool to learn for our kids and for ourselves to go over the basics. So one of the basics is you can have one word, written word or verbal word, that has multiple meanings because words are tags. They point to something. And we don't have a lot of words uh, to cover all the things we have to tag. There's so much ideas, so many ideas, so many things, so many persons and places that could have names. We end up using the same word for different things, right? Fast, I like to use the fast example, where you have the opposite. The guy's quick, the guy's not moving. (laughs) He's fastly tied to the deck, right? Or something like that. So uh, there we have it in English. We have the same thing in Greek. So we have this interesting word, grace, that has multiple meanings or uses in the language. And the word there in the Greek can mean uh, a quality that has delight or pleasure, graciousness, it would be translated, attractiveness, charm, and we would say uh, she has good grace and poise. So it's not grace the way you would think of the saving grace of God, but it can be used as grace and poise or graciousness, attractiveness, and charm. So we have a similar usage. We probably got it from the Greek. The word here, the Greek word, can also mean a favorable attitude. This is what we're used to of this word, right? An action of what is felt towards another, goodwill, favor. We read that in Acts 2.47 where they had favor with the people, uh, the early church, the, the unbelievers. As a religious uh, fact for God's attitude towards human beings, kindness, grace, favor, even helpfulness. And by grace, we typically want to 
specify unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. That is, you cannot work for God's grace. You cannot work for his favor. Because we use the word in English, for example, we'll say, well, you know, he gave me a, a favor, he did something good for me. And he may have done something good for you because you're his son or his daughter. So there's a reason why he did it. Here, the reason is God's love is nothing because of who we are or what we've done, how good we are in obeying God's commandments. It's an unmerited favor is what uh, the specific usage of that word. And that's what we're used to that word meaning. But this word can also mean, or used this way in the Bible, uh, more concretely as uh, the exceptional effects produced by God's favor. So it's not only the grace, but the effects that grace gives us. The grace of God saves our souls, brings us to heaven. That's one of the effects of it. Gives us gifts. That's one of the effects of it. And that same word can be used uh, not only for the root, but the fruit of what God has done for us. And so it can be a, a deed or a benefit or a favor, even a collection for the poor. Generous gifts. In 1 Corinthians 16, 3, where Peter thanks them, or Paul thanks them for the gifts or the grace, is the same word that he gave to the fellow believers elsewhere in the ancient Near East. When God has given us gifts in the church, officers, that word is grace. It's where we get the word charisma, charismatic. So you can see the broad usages of the word, but they all overlap in the sense of, of goodness or favor, goodwill, and the effects therein. So the greeting by Peter, grace is a blessing or goodwill desire on Peter's part for his audience. Grace to you, goodwill to you, favor unto you, Christians, pilgrims of the dispersion across there in Turkey, in Asia Minor. We would say it's his fondest wishes that his readers would have grace. But what particular grace? And I would argue all kinds of grace. The grace of God's favor upon them and upon their soul of saving them. The grace of God would grant them ability and power and sanctification, for example. That can also be called a grace. And that other Christians would favor them with gifts and more helps or more grace. So the grace he has in mind, although probably particularly the grace of God's salvation, the saving of the soul, the perseverance unto heaven, would not exclude all those other gifts. I can't see Peter saying, ah, that's the only thing I'm concerned about is your soul. I'm not concerned about your body. Paul might be concerned about your body. He's thankful. He talks about giving gifts and helping the poor. But not, not Peter, no. Of course he is. So the grace here, I think, is all kinds of grace, all kinds of goodwills and good things as well, the effects of grace. And when he says, grace to you and peace be multiplied, grace to you from whom? Peace be multiplied from whom? He doesn't say, although... We recall in First Peter or Second Peter one two, we read, "Grace and peace be multiplied unto you, through the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ." So there, he's more specific. Here, he's not because he's probably just broadly, it's grace and peace from God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He just talked about the Father, the Spirit, and the Son in the prior sentence in verse two: "Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, sanctified by the Spirit, saved and sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ." Thus, grace, 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 threefold grace. This grace comes from God. Grace to you is not grace from Peter. 
maybe the Roman Catholics teach that. They talk about saints, naming capital S for saints, of course. These people who are virtually sinless and have some special grace to give to other people. None of that. Now, again, in Second Peter, he says, It's grace and peace through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, not through me, but through your knowledge of the Word of God and the Gospel, that we gain grace, that we are given peace. God is the source of all good things. He's the source of, in fact, all grace. Both the root of grace, God's favor towards us, providence, good things he's given us, and the special providence and the effects of grace upon our church and churches where we've given gifts and blessings from him. Grace in particular, of course, is what we often think of again, the special grace of God, the unmerited favor in which he saves our soul, in which he gives us the Holy Spirit, and he brings us to heaven. Grace is the fount, we read in Peter, as we go through Peter's usage of this word, grace. Grace is the fount of our spiritual existence. 1 Peter 3.7, together of the grace of life. Life has its origin, the spiritual life we have of being born again has its origin in grace, in unmerited favor. It's nothing that we did or could do or think or could think or say or could say that commends us before God. Grace as a concrete gift of God, I mentioned that's one of the specific usages of this word, that 1 Peter 4.10 talks about it, as each one has received a gift, a grace. Minister it to one another, a good steward, uh, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Okay, Grace given as an additional mercy from God, grace given as an additional mercy from God, when God crowns his own gifts. 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we are born again as believers, and we have been humbled in that broadest sense, in that deepest sense, and yet we still have particular sins we struggle with. In that sense, you can say we're not humble at times. And God tells them, look, I will resist that so that you learn more humility. So God says, but to, uh, he gives grace to the humble. If we use the grace of God and if we are humbled more, God will give us even more grace in our sanctification. The origins of grace, of course, of all types, of all good things and goodwill, is from God, 1 Peter 5.10, near the end of the book. But may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. It is God. We always turn to God and are thankful to God. This is Peter again. Lastly, in 1 Peter 5.12, 1 Peter 5.12, grace is why we can stand against sin at all. Why we are able to, as God's people, pay attention to his word, pray before him, want to be with the saints, as many of us were you know, saddened that we couldn't meet together at the church, not because we love the church building <laughs> with its broken window and whatnot, but because we want to be with the people of God and with God and himself as he's promised us. Grace is why we can stand against sin at all. 1 Peter 5.12 By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. You are able to stand and persevere as Christians because of the true grace of God. His unmerited favor is goodwill towards us right here and right now. We have a warm roof over our head. 
when it's zero degrees outside and the roads are frozen. The snow is there, but now the snow is frozen. That's how cold it is. And we have the technology where I can preach to not only my family, but to the rest of you. Praise be to God. So grace as unmerited favor. Merit is that which you earn. You work hard enough. You earn an A, you earn a B in school. In the life of the real world of God's justice, when he comes to rule and judge across the world, we can't get an A. We can't get a B. We can't be good enough and obey God's commandments enough. And that's why we need his unmerited favor. All grace is from God to his people in particular, in spite of their sins. And it's not because we're good enough, but because of his love for us. And that's what is highlighted here when he says, Grace to you, grace from God to you, more goodwill from our Father to you. And of course, his own goodwill and the goodwill of all of us for all the saints across the world. This ought to be our prayer. Because here, when he speaks this greeting, the greeting is not just a formality for Peter. They eschew formality in that sense, but they want the formality that is the form and the words also to have the heart and the desire that real grace and God's grace be given to all of us, and that's why it is a prayer as well. The second point, peace be multiplied. So it was first grace to you, and peace be multiplied. What kind of peace is he talking about? Again, like with grace, peace has different usages uh, in the Bible with respect to the theological signification, depending on the text, you have two types, if you think about it. Objective peace and subjective peace. Objective peace and subjective peace. Objective peace is a state of grace, or what? The goodwill or unmerited favor of God, independent of our feelings or actions. We are at peace with Canada. Maybe you don't like Canada. Maybe you don't like Canadians. Right? Well, you can say China. We're at peace with China. That is, we're not officially at war. You may have bad feelings towards the Chinese government. We don't like communism. That's good. But that's independent. That's irrelevant to the objective fact that we are not at war and therefore are at peace with China. So you have the same thing in the Christian life. It's an objective reality. Now, before I, I dig into that a little bit, I want to remind us, peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Peace is one of the fruits of the Spirit. That is, its origin is from the Holy Spirit who is indwelling all of us. It is a gift or grace of God, of the Spirit in particular, and it's twofold grace. It's both objective and subjective. The objective part is the assuaging the wrath of God, or the propitiation of the wrath of God, or the satisfaction of the justice of God. God's anger is against the wicked every day. And it was against us until we were saved by Jesus Christ. That anger... And on our end, our hostility towards God has been eradicated. To cease hostilities is what? To create peace. We have peace with God because of his goodwill and his unmerited favor or his grace towards us. And that peace is real no matter what you feel like. The peace is real no matter what you feel like. God is satisfied through the blood of Christ Jesus. Romans 5.1 Therefore, having been justified by faith, declared righteous in God's law courts, where the judge of the universe says, you're innocent, and more than innocent, 
You have righteously fulfilled the commandments of God. Not as your own person, of course, but in the person of Christ Jesus who did it in our stead or for us. That's justification. Justified by faith, not by works, but by believing. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification is an objective fact that does not change. It doesn't grow. It doesn't wane. Sanctification, right? Personal subjective holiness. That grows, that wanes, that shrinks. It's strong, you're hot, you're cold, but your justification is independent of your feelings. It's a reality that's there. That God is not angry with you as a judge. He may, first be dissatisfied and punish you as a father, but that's all the difference in the world, isn't it? A father and a judge. I'd rather have a father any day be angry with me than a judge. Because a father will deal kindly with you. That's objective. The assuaging of the wrath, of his anger towards our sins. It was assuaged by Jesus Christ. Do you feel like... Jesus is dying on the cross right now for you? Of course not. It's an objective fact that happened in history, and you say, I believe it. I believe Jesus died for me. I'm hungry right now, so I don't feel good. I'm sick. It's cold outside. Those are all subjective things. They come and go. It's not relevant to the fact that God is assuaged. You have peace with the judge now. You're no longer at war with God's kingdom. You are a part of God's kingdom because you have been adopted by the Father. That's another doctrine. Right? We believe in justification. We believe in sanctification. One we forget sometimes in the middle is adoption. We have a whole chapter on that in the Confession. Uh, one of the more developed doctrines in the Reformation. We have been adopted by the Father. He's no longer our judge. It wasn't just the judge saying, Okay, sure, I'm not going to throw you into hell anymore. In fact, I consider you righteous because of your advocate, Jesus Christ. But I'm going to adopt you. You're going to be one of my own. And I'm going to pay special attention to you and take care of you. That's adoption. And again, adoption, as we know today, is a piece of paper. The children, even though they don't feel like adopted, they don't feel adopted. You know, the new parents, it's all kind of strange. It's a new house, especially if they're poor and have completely different backgrounds. But it's objectively true the child is adopted. It doesn't matter what the kid thinks. It's objectively true. It's a state of grace, independent of our feelings, our actions, this peace that we have, both uh, through justification and adoption. And of course, the subjective. That's what we're used to when we hear the word peace. <laughs> I'm not at peace with my neighbor. I'm not at peace with my family members. I'm not at peace with myself. I feel miserable. It comes and goes. It depends on our state of mind or it depends upon the things around us. This is the subjective aspect of peace. Peace of conscience of course, is one of the ones that we are familiar with. Today we say we are at peace with God. We often mean we have a peace of conscience, or the Bible talks about a good conscience or a pure conscience. That is, your mind is not a turmoil uh, condemning you all the time because of your sin. But sometimes it does, even though you're saved, because we still sin and we're still going to feel guilt. So that peace can come and go, that peace of mind, or the peace of conscience, and the peace of heart. Uh, relatedly, we have a peace of mind. I, I use that. We have kind of overlapping categories here. So, uh, prior one, where is my fork? Peace of conscience, or the Bible says, good conscience or pure conscience, is more precisely the conscience, that faculty of the soul that condemns or commends us. Right? This is, you did a good thing, I have a good conscience, I did the right thing, I believe I'm doing the right thing, take care of my family, and in cleaning the house or doing my school, or condemns you. Well, I didn't do work well enough and the like. 
that comes and goes. But you also have a peace of mind. So that's broader than the conscience, which is one faculty of the soul. The mind um, is the broader idea of your thoughts, which, of course, could be influenced by your conscience. So these could be overlapping categories is what I mean here. So peace of mind. We read uh, that similar phrase here. And Isaiah 26.3, Isaiah 26.3, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. <clears throat> so here the emphasis upon the mind of man and the thinking of man and how peace comes from that because they trust in God. Sometimes you lose sight of your trust. That's true. That's why this is subjective. The peace of mind comes and goes. Your peace of conscience comes and goes. When we follow God and flee from our sin, we have a peace of mind. But when you do sin, your conscience bothers you, your thoughts bother you, your mind becomes discombobulated or angry and agitated, you can't sleep well. That's the subjective peace. We want peace, to be sure, right? I, I don't want to keep having these miserable feelings, but sin is real, and as a Christian is there, we should not let those feelings drown and wash out the objective fact that we have peace with God and we can repent and God will forgive us of our sins. He promises that. That's what the gospel is about. It's his unmerited favor. And this is important, because often when people talk about peace, about Jesus giving us peace, if you're born again and God will save you and life will be more wonderful, one of the things you're going to get is more peace. And they often mean peace from hectic thoughts and feelings. But that doesn't always happen. Being born again doesn't get rid of, I don't know, the importance of how bad things are. If you're dirt poor, if you're not sure where food's going to come the next day, you're not going to have much peace. You're going to be focused on, and you're going to be agitated at night because your stomach's so hungry, and you're so cold. You're not going to have subjective peace, are you? And so it is misleading, I believe, to emphasize so much in the church that being born again means you're never going to have your subjective peace disturbed. You're always going to have subjective peace, and your mind should always be at calm because Jesus, uh, Jesus saved you. Well, Jesus saving you doesn't mean you're going to have food the next day, does it? Think about that. This is a, this is important. We we kind of have this therapeutic approach to Jesus in America and in the churches, even Reformed churches. Sometimes you kind of slip into that. Well, you know, if you're really a believer, then you should have no no turmoil in your soul. Well, again, if you're starving and you're freezing, you're going to have turmoil. That's all there is to it. And Jesus just simply says, I will save your soul. Um, often I will take care of your body, in the sense that I will give you especially good things, but he will obviously take care of our bodies always, in the sense of giving us a resurrected body. So, body, diet, exercise, hormones, freezing environment, a car crash, death threats, that will change your subjective peace of mind. Your subjective peace of mind is not guaranteed to always be at peace. That's the point. What is guaranteed is your justification your sanct- and your adoption and the conclusion of your sanctification <laughs> when Christ Jesus returns. Now, when he says your peace be multiplied, of course, he means an overabundance and want you to have all kinds of peace, I think. Again, I don't think he means just the objective peace because um, it doesn't change. Maybe he's saying, may you really be saved and you always be justified, you always be adopted, because that doesn't change. But also other kinds of peace, peace of your mind, peace of your conscience, and peace with the church, between brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's the opposite, obviously, of schism and division, which wraps churches, unfortunately, small and large alike. 
Ephesians 4, 3, we read, Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's that peace. So that's, again, subjective in the sense that it will come and go. Some churches are more at peace than other churches. The environment changes. It fluctuates. We want that kind of peace. We want all kinds of peace. I, I'm not saying, hey, it's, go ahead and just sit there and, and wallow in, in, in misery because it is cold and you're looking for a job and you're starving. Uh, I don't want you to have that discomfort of mind and turmoil. I want you to have peace, to be sure. We've got to pray for that. Uh, but we shouldn't be naive and think uh, all that's going to be going away just because you're born again. It's still a struggle. It's still a prayer for us as it is for Peter. Grace to you, unmerited favor from God, and peace. Unmerited peace, but real peace, both objective and subjective. I pray for you. The peace of conscience, the peace of mind, the peace between brothers and sisters in the Lord, or peace of relationships and family members, of course, it could be applied. Peter uses the word peace uh, twice. 1 Peter 3.11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. He's probably meaning there, uh, peace with all men, especially the church. Don't cause unnecessary divisions. Of course, unless it has to happen. And pursue it. That is, work it out. Don't just, oh, whatever, I kind of made an effort. Be, be zealous in towards the pursuit of peace, as we read in Ephesians 4.3, for example. And it's a blessing to prayer again. 1 Peter 5.14 at the end. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Just specify what peace. It's probably all of it again, like grace. Peace of relationships, peace of mind and conscience, and of course that God would preserve you and that you will not fall away from the faith, that you're at peace with God, both in justification and adoption. This prayer of Peter is our prayer and ought to be our prayer, brothers and sisters, not just their prayer. We can bless one another, we can give greetings to one another, greetings to you and grace to you and peace be multiplied. That should be our prayer, even if it's not a greeting the way they'd had greetings back then. It should always be our prayer in our closet, with our family, as I prayed before, the people of God, a prayer of grace and more grace from God Almighty, a prayer of peace and more peace multiplied beyond measure, and peace towards God and peace towards the brethren and grace from him and him alone. Amen. Let us pray. Grant us, we pray, God, more grace and more peace, and that we would draw nigh unto you, Lord, Cast aside all things around us and our feelings, Lord, and to cling to Jesus Christ. We pray, God, you watch and protect us this day and keep us safe and warm, we pray. Amen.